That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that can go anywhere and do anything within that radical decade of the 80s, exploring books, television, games, movies, and more. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Benjamin, I have a little bit of a announcement, news, update, and it's actually 80s related. Really? What do you got in your pocket there? What's going on? So, what do you have? It's actually far ranging, but it does come back to the 80s. And that is, I have, I hate to call it a resolution, but for lack of a better term, I've made a resolution this year to watch more movies. Because oh. on this podcast and more generally in life, I find myself saying, oh, I haven't seen that. Ah, it looks yeah. interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen that. So in the interim, since we last spoke and recorded an episode, I want to talk about three movies I picked up. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. Okay. Fantastic. Spanning some time, uh, the most recent I picked up Banshees of Inishirin, Oh, uh, which nabbed some Golden Globes, I believe, here recently. Yeah. Very strange, but good movie. You know, Colin Farrell's lovely in it and uh yeah. it's a great cast but very quirky odd not what i expected kind of movie so pick that one up well and it had brendan gleason right who i love ever yes. since like gangs of new york i thought was so awesome yes i He's love that guy also lovely in it yeah very interesting you are not going to predict where this movie goes okay. like it's <laughs> it's not like a i know what's coming next because you're yeah. like oh okay yeah so there's that i watched john wick oh had never seen John Wick. You saw so your first like, John Wick. Yes. And how do you the feel? First one. Are you a gun fu addict now? Are you, are, are you super into it? Maybe I was expecting more over the toppedness based on what people had told me. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, The Matrix where people are freezing in air and the camera's spinning around 360. Sure. You know, no bullet it wasn't time that in kind of a thing. But uh, it was enjoyable. But it, it, I was almost expecting it to be more ridiculous than it was. Yeah, not ridiculous. It's not like uh, we're not talking Fast and Furious here. Yeah, a little more subdued than that. There's actually heart behind it. It's not just oh, like yeah. someone kills his dog and he goes like bat crap crazy. So bat uh, crap crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I like the John Wick movies actually a lot. So I'm glad. I'm glad you yeah, enjoyed it. And the the third movie, the reason we're here in '80s High. Thank goodness. Uh, I picked up Trading Places. <gasps> With none other than Mr. Dan Aykroyd and, of course, Mr. Eddie Murphy, as well as Don Amici. Actually, Don Amici, he was in uh, Harry and Anderson's. He played the scientist guy. Right, right, of course, yeah. Playing uh, Mortimer, or was he Randolph? One of the two. Mortimer, Randolph? And what did you think of Trading Places? Enjoyable. It definitely has several wincing moments that don't stand the test of time where you're like, yee! But those aside, I found it to be an enjoyable movie. And I love the premise. Like, I am a psychologist at heart. That's my undergrad. Uh-huh. And the whole movie is like heredity and environment and their general uh, yeah. impacts. That aspect I didn't know was in the movie and found it very interesting. Yeah. I just thought it was like a um, a more straightforward – it's not a body swap, but it's like a you know role swap kind of a movie. Yeah. 
No, I found it very enjoyable. It's fun. I'm glad I finally picked it up. So that's, that's my three movies. One of them, of course, being an 80s property. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, good watch. You know, and I do have to ask you for my homeroom topic and any of those movies, did you need to watch with subtitles? I usually have subtitles on because I find that sometimes the um, music is like blasting loud. Yeah. yeah. And the dialogue is really quiet. And I'm like, what is different about the mix? Is my TV garbage? Is it just that it was made for a different setup than watching it on streaming? I don't quite know, but I find movies. Now, TV shows, I don't find this issue as much, but movies seem to be very poorly mixed for streaming. Well, it's a little bit of all that. So I watched this fascinating, tiny, short mini documentary this week uh, by Vox that was called Why We All Now Need Subtitles. Hmm. And it explains, I find I'm always using subtitles, except if I'm watching older movies. When I go back to do research for this show and I watch like 80s TV and 80s movies, don't really need the subtitles so much. But like, See, I was worrying I was getting too old. No, <laughs> that was my- absolutely not. <laughs> and I, I keep finding that when I, even when I'm watching, you and I were talking about The Walking Dead, even something like The Walking Dead, yeah. where someone will say something and I have to like hit the little 15 second rewind to be like, what? 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 And it's just, <laughs> it makes me again, well, I've said this a thousand times, respect and love the analog of the 80s, the hmm. simpler, streamlined editing and recording. It's a lot of reasons. Like you said, it's cheaper equipment. It's movies and TV getting mixed for sound environments that most consumers can't afford at home. It's dialogue trying to be rougher and gruffer so actors are mumbling more often. It's mm-hmm. more variety of microphones on set. So you're getting interference, you're getting background noise, and you're getting Interesting. crazy. Kind of like we talked about with uh, Quantum Leap getting produced in six days. You've got crazy turnaround on production and not enough time to clean up the audio before it's got to pop out on Netflix or whatever. So uh, it was actually really interesting. I highly recommend it. Wow. But it made me respect the audio magicians of the 80s even more. Well, I'm glad to hear that my hearing is not going that bad so far. That's <laughs> no. That's reassuring. The only other thing I've got is like, do you ever feel like you're being followed? Have you ever gotten that feeling? Like regularly or just like at some point in my life? Like, have you been like in the grocery store and like you saw somebody come around the corner and you're like, oh, there's that person. And then like two aisles later, they're there again. I've been on both ends of this where you're driving somewhere and you're like taking the same turns as somebody and you're like, hold on, this is too many turns we're taking together. Right? It gets weird. Is this another phenomena you've uh, learned about? Yes. And I've learned about it in the hardest of ways through the school of hard knocks in real life. I... I'm pretty sure I'm being followed. Oh, boy. And the perpetrator of whom I think we've been talking in this house, and I think I need to file a restraining order, is one Miss Pat Benatar. What is going on? Everywhere I go this year, I hear (gasps) Pat Benatar music, and it's freaking me out. Like, I hop in the car, I'll turn the key on, Pat Benatar. I'll go to the grocery store, and you know they've got that like cool background soft jam yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's freaking Pat Benatar. I'll even just put a random Spotify list, like "Oh Sunday Brunch Fun," and like the second song is like "We Belong." Like, what is happening? Isn't there also that effect where if something's in your brain, you're more likely to See? attend I'm to it? I'm wondering that too. Like, I just don't know. I don't know if it's like because we did Pat Benatar that we like, I listen to it more now. Or if it's because she got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that she's getting more airtime now all of mm. a sudden. Like, I don't know, but it's mm. making me uncomfortable. 
and I'm worried about my safety. Maybe she's saying, we belong, we belong together. We belong, Benjamin, come to me. It's freaking me out. It's so good. But after like the ninth time, you're like, what is, what is happening here? Like in the movie trailer for this, like it's we belong, but it's saying like in a minor key. So it's like really haunting. Yes. It's like the Pinocchio song for Age of Ultron. (laughs) There are no strings on me. Yeah. (laughs) We We belong. belong. I feel like they did that in a season of... Stranger Things. Well, I was, well. was going to say it was it was the clock in the last one that like toned oh, for yeah. um, one. If she's eleven, he's one, I guess. Anyway, or mm-hmm. Vanek, Verkic. I don't remember. Come on, that was so long ago. <laughs> Who knows Stranger Things the last season? But we are not here to talk about movies or the haunting presence of Pat Benatar, the Stalker. What are we going to do this week? Try to remember that Vanek guy's name. This is going to drive me crazy. Oh, is it really? Okay, no, we can get to it. I'm thinking Varric, but that's from uh, Legend of Korra. It sounds kind of like Varric, right? Yeah, it's really close to that. Vecna. Vecna. Oh, my God. Vecna. But no, back to your question. We are here, of course, to talk about Reading Rainbow, that delightful program that began in the 1980s and... Opened little kids' minds to the wonders and joys of reading books, of enjoying books, of finding new stories. So I think it's time we crack open those history books because we're headed down the hall to learn about the origins of reading Rainbow in the 80s. I'm stoked. Let me run in from outside and playing. Let me wash all the mud off my hands and then I'll be ready to be indoors and focus. Perfect. Okay, so we are here in history class to learn about where Reading Rainbow came from. Well, let's first talk about what it is. So Reading Rainbow is an American educational children's television series originally aired on PBS. That's the Public Broadcasting Service. Started in July of 1983 and runs all the way to November of 2006. That's 21 seasons slash 26 years. It's amazing. On the airwaves. And 155 30-minute episodes were produced. It's incredible. The show was the creation of Buffalo, Toronto, Public Media. And Ben, you kind of alluded to this when you were joking about coming in from the outdoors. This idea of a summer loss phenomena mm-hmm. where kids were kind of losing some of their reading ability over the summer because they tended not to read. You're not in school. You're going to be outdoors playing with your friends, having adventures. Also, like growing up in the 80s in the summer, we weren't allowed to be indoors during the day. Oh, no. I don't want to see you until dinner time. Right. The only reading you did in the 80s in the summer was either graffiti you found somewhere near near where you were playing, <laughs> or like whatever magazines you found in the treehouse of your friend's older brother. Like that's the reading you got in the 80s. That's all you Maybe got. Maybe in the evening after you came indoors, you could like sneak a little Nintendo power, read through Maybe, and see yeah, what, the, what games were coming down the pipe. Back of a cereal box at breakfast, but we weren't cracking novels all summer. Wasn't happening. Right, right. So that's really, you know, part of the show's mission is to combat that summer loss phenomena. And really to use television to inspire children's love of reading and build a lasting connection between kids and books. Reading Rainbow is partially supported by what's called the Ready to Learn grant from the U.S. Department of Education. So the content 
was formed around some major themes, uh, which were required of getting these grants, which was to motivate kids in grades kindergarten through third grade to become avid readers, to help all kids succeed as readers, encourage a strong home literacy environment, and enrich classroom literacy environments. All right, so let's talk then about some other factors that made this show come together. So next, you have a show. Well, you need a host. And Reading Rainbow was hosted by actor and executive producer LeVar Burton, who is then known for his role in the miniseries Roots. Ben, have you seen Roots? Are you familiar with this show? Yeah, so Roots is this miniseries, TV miniseries on ABC in the late 70s. And it sort of tells this like multi-generational story of, a, of an African family that eventually becomes an African-American family. But right, LeVar plays this character, Kunta Kinte, in one of the episodes. So the team who's putting Reading Rainbow together has seen him on Roots. They were just captivated with his performance. He was very good looking. They said he was extremely articulate. He was very magnetic when he's, when he's delivering lines. And LeVar goes on later to say it was Roots that taught him the power of television, that deciding what kind of stories you choose to be involved in, you could really make a difference in the world as being a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah, and he really does credit looking at television as a medium to get to kids, you know, because at that time, television was seen as something that was a sedentary thing. Again, get outside, go be active, don't sit around all day. That was the parents' mantra of the 80s. Right. And television, you're sitting there, it's sedentary, your brain is rotting, TV rots your brains, you know. (laughs) It's that whole kind of mentality. But LeVar and the producers of the show really saw this as like, no, wait, television is a a vehicle because kids are into it. We can use this to get them interested in books. So it's really about using what is popular at that time. And we're going to see that continue in different yeah, forms right. as we, you know, as we go throughout this episode. And another big thing for LeVar was uh, really his passion for reading. And he has this great quote. He said, I feel like I come by this passion. Honestly, my mother was an English teacher. Her example and insistence that reading and the written word be a consistent part of our lives when my sister and I were growing up not only shaped my attitude towards reading, but really fostered a discovery of worlds that were inaccessible to me previously. Mm. You know, he also went on to say, she also stressed the importance of education as a tool that I would need in my life to compete on a level playing field with what I refer to as my melanin-challenged brethren and sisterin. Melanin One of the best- challenge. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> One of the vestiges of chattel slavery in the amount of pain, suffering, and damage it has done to the black community is a concentrated lack of focus on the education of the black community. It has only been by tremendous display of will and willingness to sacrifice almost everything to have that educational foundation as part of the lives of generation after generation of black Americans. So, you know, really another huge part of this was a call to service, if you will, for a community he identified with that education because of slavery and the history, you know, within the black community wasn't really being the dollars, the value, the emphasis wasn't there. And so it's really, you know, the way he saw it and his mother was kind of saying was it's that connection to create those avenues of interest. And as we'll see, this show has kids recommending books to other kids. So you get a lot of diversity, not only of the kids on the show, but the kinds of books they're reading. And then they're recommending that to all the kids who are watching the show. So it really, I think, helps to 
you know, a, a lot of success that we see in ourselves is you see people who look like you, yeah. who sound like yeah, you, yeah, 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 who yeah. are like you on TV, in successful roles as scientists, as business people, as executives, or as whatever. And so I think a lot of this is really, it's subtle in a way, but it's at the core of a show like this that's really all about, again, igniting that passion. A hundred percent. Both those aspects are huge, and I want to try and break them down. The first is LeVar Burton being the host. So Reverend Donald Marbury, who's the former associate director of Children's and Cultural Programming, on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which this all ties into, you know, pointed out that LeVar was the first black host of any children's programming on television. That's a major step. Yeah, for sure. Not only being a black host, but also being male were also mm-hmm. two things you rarely saw in children's education at the time on television. And he was a celebrity coming off roots, so he had some notoriety come into that. That's huge on one point about being seen and having someone to look up to and having a role model that you're not seeing elsewhere in your life. But yeah. your point with the kids, 100%, they, they, they it's like why TripAdvisor and like Yelp reviews are so much. Like people just rely on reviews much more than like the normal marketing that's coming out. So like a literary agent can do all they want or a publishing house on, to, to push their books to kids. But when an actual kid who looks like you on television is telling you like, hey, this book is great. You should go check it out. Here's, And I think those parts of the show are so charming. We're going to get to that in chemistry. Oh I'm, my not, I'm not going to spoil that now. No, it was a lot of fun to revisit those. Those were great. Yeah, but that's huge. It's a huge component. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and another thing that was great about LeVar is, you know, his approach to his delivery, it was direct. It was not patronizing. He wasn't talking down. You know, it was really like he was having a conversation with the audience. And right. Not a over your head, but not a, you know, handholdy kind of way. And he's just a very kind person. And Burton, you know, through that really became a conduit of learning for children of every background, as we've talked about. Well, I think where part of that comes in is both the producers of the show and LeVar talk about how Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, was a major mentor on the production of Reading Rainbow, that they went for him for counsel in the early days on what this show should be, also asking mm-hmm. how to get funding for this show. Sure, you know, yeah, how do absolutely. Do it? But, but Fred also, like when you watch old Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, talks right to the cameras, talking right to kids, very at their level, but not patronizing them and you can see that sort of magic and that like also excitement for like the common and everyday in lavar's delivery in the show too most certainly so that's the host we have lavar in place well like any good show particularly in the 80s we need a banging theme song heck yeah we do i think we all know this show's theme song even if we never watched an episode we know the reading rainbow song but let's talk a little bit about it it's written by steve horlick Dennis Neal Kleinman, and Janet Weir. And the original theme song, the one we probably all know, ran from 1983 at the start all the way to 98. And it was performed by Tina Fabrique and featured one of the first uses of the Bukla synthesizer and a TV theme song. We've we got another synthesizer. We cannot be talking 80s without talking about a synthesizer. <laughs> it's like the fourth episode in a row we've been talking about synthesizers. So good. The original opening sequence, it consisted of an animated butterfly transforming the surroundings of young children reading books into animated fantasy lands. The animation was done by Ovation Films Incorporated. It was designed and animated by Bill Davis. 
Now, this gets a little bit into contemporary culture, but I didn't realize this until actually I started watching some episodes. The theme song changed a couple times. I know. When I watched the first episode for research for this topic, I was like, that's not that's not my reading rainbow. That's not what is that my- song? What is that? <laughs> that's not the song. So let's just talk about it now because it's not super interesting to like get into later, but we're here. So in 1998, they began using a live action opening sequence. Obviously, we're going to add in some CGI. It's the late 90s. Got to test it out. It's a space-themed world, but it's got a new arrangement of the original song performed by Johnny Kemp. Okay. Now, I don't know if I heard this one. I think I heard the next one. So there's a third intro that starts in the year 2000. In the year 2000. In the year 2000. (laughs) And this is a re-recorded version of the original lyrics performed by R&B artist Shaka Khan. That's awesome. I love that Shaka Khan did it. It feels like a slowed down version of the original. I didn't really like it. I like the old school one so much more. For the sake of our listeners, can you do like a verse from each here? Can we hear the three? Fabrique, Shaka Khan, and Kemp? Okay, let's do a quick cut of each of them in succession. Yes! in the sky I can go twice as high Take a look It's in a book A reading rainbow Great. Which one was yours, listener? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe this is rose-colored nostalgia goggles. The original, all the way. All day, the original. Hands down. Fabrique on fleek. She's the one. There's there's no other. Did you say on fleek? Fabrique is on fleek. <laughs> you can't hate on Shaka Khan, but, but Fabrique is the OG. I love it. Yeah. Again, that great theme song, that's the hook, that gets you into the show. Let's talk a little bit about then the show itself and what each episode's format contains. And some of this I had forgotten. I didn't realize some of these different segments in it. So each episode. All right, good. It wasn't just me. Each episode centers on a topic from a featured children's book. Uh, And it was explored through a number of on-location segments or stories. This is the part I didn't remember. And it's very in the vein of. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Mm. where he would like go to a place, talk to a person. I had forgotten about that, too. I just remember him coming in, doing his routine, telling a little bit of a story. I mean, let's be honest. On that show, I was all about make-believe, land of make-believe with the puppets. That was my jam. Yeah. And this one, I just remember the segments really talking about the books. But yeah, they explore the scene and then they go talk to like people in the real world doing a thing. You see LeVar walking down a city street in New York. Right. Doing a little walk and talk and all that. It's super cool. Uh, It would feature a guest reading a children's story as the illustrations are shown on the screen. As mentioned, LeVar would often interview someone about their work or hobbies that would relate to that Mm -hmm. show's theme. And then, as we mentioned, we have the segment called book review and this is where real kids would recommend books that they like and why this is where we get that 
but you don't have to take my word for it. Right. And then you get a, a cut of about three or four kids talking about a book that they love and why you two should read it. Another catchphrase always came at the end of the episode, usually, which is, I'll see you next time. Oh, yeah. So right. we had kind of a little sign off, but I think the, but you don't have to take my word for it, became like the one that people most associate with the show. But that's kind of the episode structure and remains pretty consistent for the entire run of the show. I totally forgot about like the live action real world. Let's go see how some stuff works. Yeah. I really want to get into that in chemistry because I have a lot of emotions and thoughts about that. Yes, for sure. I do want to point out. So when the book is being read, there's the camera sort of panning across the pages of the real book as the as the guest storyteller reads it. And one of the show's producers, Dr. Twyla Leggett, likes to say that they sort of invented the Ken Burns method, that they were Ken Burns before <laughs> Ken Burns of like panning across. Because they were like, you know, we got to try and keep kids connected to the TV. We're not as exciting as cartoons. We're not as exciting as going out and playing. So they're like, we have to make these move and we don't have the budget to actually animate the story. Right. So they like did this whole thing, this company in Kansas who would like cut up the pages and pan across them to try and make them more interesting. But I like that this was like the pre-Ken Burns was reading Rainbow. I thought it was cool. That's a great nugget that you picked up. And yeah, I, I totally understand why this show did it and why Ken Burns did. And it's amazing what a still image with some motion <laughs> yeah. doesn't change. It does something like really your, your brain, it. you don't really recognize it, but your brain, I don't know, it's somehow more satisfying. Yeah, right, right, right. Really interesting. That's super cool. This show was pretty much immediate success. And while the concept of it was to combat the summer slump, it really became a blockbuster year round, a classroom staple yeah. and a cultural icon. It grew to become one of the longest-running and best-loved children's literacy series on PBS. It reached more than 2 million viewers each week. That's awesome. And for many years was the most-watched PBS program in elementary school classrooms across the country. It is the third-longest-running children's series in PBS history after Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah. Is it Sesame Street still on, actually? Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's changed a lot. Oh it's like, uh, to be honest, it's actually pretty intense. It's like they really cranked up the energy. And now Cookie Monster uh, kind of eats everything. It's all about having a balanced diet. a celery diet. monster. Yeah, he eats a lot of vegetables now. But, you know, it's still out there. It's on. That's what I have for history class. I know there's a lot to talk about in chemistry. But first, is there anything else we need to cover before the bell rings and we head down the hall? There's a few more things that are interesting. You know, we always talk about, like, where the thing came from. Reading Rainbow didn't really come up with this concept necessarily. I mean, all the way back in the 50s and the 60s, there were there was children's programming that had people on television reading a book or bringing animals from a zoo and talking about it. Even on a WNED, where a lot of this program originated, even before there was Captain Kangaroo. Mm -hmm. That was a weekday morning kids show, 29 years, ran for a long time, 1955 to 84. But this really, we're going to talk about in chemistry, this really brought it to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. I think also what's really interesting in the development of the show, the electric company did a bunch of research on children's education and reading. And they showed that like second grade is one of the most ideal times to nurture a love of reading in children. Mm. And if you can do it then, then they're set for life. And so this whole program was kind of built around second graders, trying to target second graders to read, which I thought was awesome. Right in the middle of that range we talked about. Right. Okay, one more thing I thought was really interesting in the history was how they selected the books. The producers and the staff would kind of go through books, and they're really looking for a book that you could tie a whole 
story around, a whole episode around, something really interesting. And what I mm-hmm. love is they would do a lot of hands-on research. So, like, they said, like, oh, if we're going to do a dinosaur book, we would go to, like, a paleontology dig site and, like, talk to them without even shooting yet, just to learn. If we're going to do camping, the whole production staff would, like, go camping for a weekend, which apparently when they did do a camping book, it just poured rain on them the whole weekend, which I thought was kind of fun. But, <laughs> like, that's camping. Yeah, that's camping. That's <laughs> camping, especially around us. All the crew, even LeVar said, one of their most memorable ones was when they did a volcano book and they like went to a, an erupting volcano like and talked with volcanologists. They're like, this is intense. Mm-hmm. We're really doing it for the kids here. Yeah, yeah. But early on, publishers were really reticent to like let them use the books on the show. They're like, what is your little show? What audience do you have? They really struggled to like get the books on. But then once the show started to take off, of course, publishers were begging to yeah. have their books on Reading Rainbow. Yeah. After episodes would air, some titles, would their sales would go up by 800%. Some publishers printed Reading Rainbow stickers, licensed, of course, and sent them to libraries to put it on the books that were featured to try and like get more people to check out the books. This or, is like or Oprah's Book Club, right? It's exactly. got the little... Yeah. Like, it totally yeah, yeah. changed. You know, one of the producers, Ganek, says... Reading Rainbow changed the way children's books were published. You know, they would they would originally do these really small print runs just to, like, leak it out there. But if they did right. it on Reading Rainbow, then they would just, like, crank up the factory to 11 uh, because it made it on Reading Rainbow. It was huge. Yeah. The last little thing, just because I know it's, like, near and dear to your heart, LeVar Burton's time was really fought for in the 80s. He was on Reading Rainbow. What? But what else could have eaten up his time? Oh, yeah, I guess uh, Star Trek Next Generation did start in the 80s, didn't it? Exactly. Star Trek The Next Generation, which I did. There's another fun little story there. But he got Star Trek in 1986. And the that's three years after the first episode aired of Reading Rainbow. And the whole production crew was like, oh, no, this massive budget, Gene Roddenberry, sci-fi. We're going to lose LeVar. We're going to lose our star. Like, one of us is going to have to read children's books. What I thought was awesome was that Rick Berman who was the executive producer on Star Trek at the time, told LeVar Burton that he used to work in children's programming and loved reading Rainbow. So he would partially build Star Trek shoot schedules around reading Rainbow's shoot schedule so LeVar could still do both shows without doing any conflict. This reminds me of like Michael J. Fox when he was shooting Family Ties during the day, and then at night he would go shoot Back to the Future. Yes, right, exactly, just like that. And that guy like never slept. Granted, that was a shorter time frame, but it, it kind of reminds me of that. You just imagine like Lavar hopping on a little golf cart and then running halfway across a production studio to get from like set to set to uh, to get all of his stuff right. done. You quoted him from The View in that same interview. What I learned on that episode is that LeVar got Whoopi Goldberg on Star Trek. That mm-hmm. he had like just landed his Star Trek role. They were having lunch and he told her about it. And she's like, come on, man. This sounds ridiculous. But it sounds kind of cool. And then once she saw him on it and what he was doing for representation and just how well written the show was, she's like, yeah. all right, I'll do it. I'll go on Star Trek. That's how we got Guinan, who's awesome on Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, she's a great add to the uh, show. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say she's a reason the Borg are there, but she knew who the Borg <laughs> were when they got launched over there by Q. So, but this is not a Star Trek Next Generation Whoopi's already in, podcast. in the know. Not yet. Join us later <laughs> right. on our, yeah, our Star Trek podcast. Um, that's, all, that's all I have for history. Well, I think we've set a great foundation for where this show came from and all the pieces that came together for it. 
But it's time for us to move on down the hall to chemistry. And if chemistry is the story of matter, change, and reactions, oh boy. then if we head down this hallway, we can share our reactions to how this show mattered and changed us as viewers. Wow, that was quite the setup. Okay, I'll follow, I'll follow you on that one. I'll just go with it. <laughs> wow. Okay, we're going to move on in chemistry. Because I know you got a chemical reaction from your memories and experiences of reading Rainbow, oh, our man. revisit, as well as our recollections. So let's talk about that. Let's start with memories. And of course, we asked the class of 80s high. Yeah. And we had a, a very enthusiastic listener, Megan, who had this to say. She mostly remembered the theme song, of course, and how nice LeVar Burton seemed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was such a like... You know those adults where you just get like a good vibe? You're like, this is a cool adult. Like, I'm a kid. <laughs> adults aren't my people. There's just somebody where you're like, you just get that like, oh, yeah, this is good people. And that's for kids. I think it's who LeVar was. 100%. And even even though it's like through a camera lens, like, it's hard to create that environment where kids feel comfortable. And LeVar just like had that ability of looking straight into the camera, which is into their eyes in a way, talking patiently, talking kindly, never losing his cool. He just came across as so trustworthy and just like Mr. Rogers, you know, conveyed an earnesty of appreciation for this moment we're going to share together, which like kids are always trying to get your attention. So it's a very special thing to give a kid your undivided attention. And he did that through the television. Yeah, he's the man. So what memories did you have of reading Rainbow? So I have no specific memories of actually watching the show growing up. I certainly knew about the show. I knew the theme song. And one of the reasons I want to talk about it, because I was like, okay, I want to see like, what was I missing? I knew there was probably something about the show I wasn't quite recalling. Those live action segments and the interviews were a big part of it. But yeah, I didn't have like a, a firm memory. I'm sure I watched some episodes. I just couldn't think of any. And it wasn't certainly a staple of my, you know, watching habits whenever I was able to watch cartoons and such. But I do have a lot of related memories that are around reading that I think are connected and really ultimately, I think, reinforce the ideas behind reading Rainbow. And one of them, I've talked about this a few times on the show, bookmobiles. Did you ever like a bookmobile or a book fair? Oh, for like sure. a scholastic book fair? It was fair? the best in elementary school. Those I loved so much. First off, the bookmobile. Hello, a library and a bus. Thank you very much. Everyone out of my way. That was so much fun, but just like the book fairs and we get those little magazines with the different books and you could like flip through and I would circle all these books and I just remembered being very excited, but also knowing we didn't have a lot of money for me to get a ton of books, but I could usually get like one or two, but I remember going through and circling with pencil the ones I wanted oh, yeah. and taking them to my mom and be like, can I get some books? And she'd be able to say like, well, you can get two. Okay. All right. And then I could like go through and figure out what I wanted when I was ready for that book fair. Do you have any book fair related memories? I mean, it's entirely how I built my eyewitness and goosebumps collections. I mean, that's, mm. that's, that's where they came from. Those were the best. For sure. And it was like always exciting when your classroom got finally like called down and it was your whatever, 20 minutes to go through and snag what you wanted. Another one I remember is the reading contests that would happen in oh, school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think they yeah. were sponsored by Pizza Hut. Oh. Because I remember if you read so many books. Oh, you got some pizza. You would get a free personal pan pizza 
from Pizza Hut. And of course, as a kid, there's nothing more luxurious than a pizza all to yourself, especially if you had older, younger brothers and sisters. Like you wanted your own pizza. And I just, I remember this time that I can't remember why, but my mom came to school and she picked me up, maybe at a doctor's appointment. And after we stopped at Pizza Hut and I got my own personal pizza and it was like the coolest thing. I was in third grade, I think. It was the coolest thing that could ever happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Pizza for reading. But that was great. And then I have one more, which is a first grade memory. Oh, okay. And we had these little yellow covered paperback books. They're just like simple things stapled together. Okay. And you could, during the school day, you could grab them off the shelf and read them and put them back. And I remember I would take one, sneak it into my bag, (gasps) take it home. What? This is the nerdiest theft on earth. You monster. I would then at night read them under the covers with a flashlight as not to wake up my brother. And then I would take them back to school the next day and return them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least you returned them. That was very kind of you. That is the nerdiest theft I've ever heard of. And I was like, were these a thing that just my school did or whatever? And I looked it up. And as best I can tell, there is a series of books called Piper Books. Okay. And there's a series of Piper Books called I See Sam that teach kids to read. And I think that's what these books were. But that's what I remember from first grade is stealing and returning books to read at night in secret. So you you had cultivated a love of reading so much that it was worth worth it to break the law and steal books is where you were at. So there's human law and then there's like a moral code that sits above human law. Okay. So I was operating at a, a higher level. Gr- I was above the law. First grade, first grade Chris was operating above human law is what you're saying here, stealing books. Okay. I said, look, I know why there's this law here because kids will take it home and they'll, they'll not bring it back. They'll forget or whatever. You're like, I'm going to bring it back. We've all done this in our lives. We're like, I know why the rule is here. Someone ruined something in the past, but I'm responsible. So I'm an exception to the rule. Thank oh you. <laughs> all right. Do you have any other memories around this show or anything related to reading Rainbow? What surprised me was that, you know, in digging in and researching this show is that it was a summer program. Because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, teachers used this show all the time. I remember going to the library and there was like a part of our library where you could like roll out a TV and watch a TV. It's the same kind of place where like guest speakers would come and like read a book to you. And yeah. we would watch episodes of Reading Rainbow in elementary school, either in English class or in the library. And that's where it really comes in to me. And then you could, you know, of course, like the librarian would have done their due diligence and like there would be copies of the book there for you to check out. Or maybe your teacher would be reading that book in class, whatever, what have you. But that's the memory for me is watching elementary school. And I feel like that should have happened or probably happened. I just have no recollection of it. Yeah. But yeah, I remember we would take class trips to the library. The librarian would talk to us. How do you check out a book? You have a little stick you'd put in if you pull a book off the shelf so you know where to put it back. Like we had to have watched Reading Rainbow. I just don't remember it. No, for sure. The other thing that really sticks out to me is it's got like one of the best. TV theme songs, kids' TV theme songs, the 80s. 
Yeah. Especially if, you know, we do, you and I do a lot of like late 80s television, and this is like an early to mid, is like the high time, 83 again, the first episode. So this like really has a tonal quality that like, like the magical piano right at the beginning, the key, the synth, I guess that's happening. Well, and the important distinction here too is all those other cartoons we watched were to hook you to buy toys. That's right. That's right. They had a, a vested interest in having an amazing hook of a theme song, but something like this didn't have to because it's being shown in school and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of it is we want to hook kids. Okay, we really can't phone in this theme song for this educational program. It's got to be good. You know, it's funny you say that too. You'll probably get to this in contemporary culture, but you know, listener, you may have noticed you haven't been watching Reading Rainbow recently. The show eventually doesn't make it anymore. Right. And that goes to struggling with funding. And one of the things they struggled with is they're like, yo, we got nothing in merchandise. We don't have our own books. Yeah. We're not going to issue a, a LeVar plushie that you pull a string and says, well, you don't have to take my word for it. Like, they're not going to do that. <laughs> right. They had no merchandising, which was no a problem. No merchandising, They had nothing man. to sell. Yeah. They had no play sets and toys to promote. I did read they briefly thought about the butterfly, like the butterfly in the sky that like flies briefly mm-hmm. in the intro, like make a plushie out of that. And they're like, mm. even after doing the math, selling a plushie butterfly is not going to save reading Rainbow. You, you need right. You need more cash than just squishy butterfly toys. Right. Absolutely. Those are my main memories from it. Okay. Well, we, uh, I think, revisited the show a little bit and watched some episodes. Are there any episodes you want to talk about or just in general? You mentioned that there were some of the segments or aspects of the show that you really wanted to hit on. Look, I think Reading Rainbow could save America today here's the thing i watched a bunch of episodes of reading rainbow in preparation for this show is it going to end war and usher in world peace like fraggle rock like it could like i think it could be a part of the fraggle rock utopia that we need because fraggle rock taught like kindness and empathy and collaboration like it was so good Mm-hmm. And there's something here that I totally forgot that was part of reading Rainbow that I think is like amazing for empathy. Here's what I'm talking about. Yes, okay. we all know they like read a book and they Ken Burns around it. And then the kids, adorable kids who have like one tooth are like, let me tell you why this book is amazing. Like we all remember that. I forgot about the live action segments. Mm. And I legit at my age now learned so much. And I was, like, literally so eager to get to dinner to, like, tell my family, be like, y'all are not going to believe what I learned in reading Rainbow today as a grown adult. (laughs) And so what am I talking about? What am I talking about here? I'm talking, like, in the first episode I watched, the book is If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. And then they go to a bowling alley and show you how everything works, like, behind the lanes. And then they go to a bowling ball factory and show you how bowling balls are made. That's cool. Which I'm not going to reiterate on the show how it's done, but it is freaking amazing how bowling balls mm. are made. It's very cool. It was all about cause and effect. Was that episode? You know, give a mouse a cookie. Here's what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like they go to like a domino expert who sets up a bunch of dominoes and like you just learn how people make their own dominoes and how to like do like the patience it takes to fill a gym of dominoes and go nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one they talked a lot about, like, upcycling and compost, which is really good. Didn't have, like, the live part that I'm talking about. But the last one that, like, blew my mind were cranberries. 
I can Ooh. hear my partner laughing right now listening to this episode because I've told her so many times. I teased her all day of like, do you know how cranberries are made? And she's like, I think I do. And I was like, you don't. And it's going to blow your freaking mind. <laughs> and so I finally like got tell her, the, the episode goes to a cranberry farm. Cranberries grow on a vine. Cranberries themselves, the fruit, uh, have like air pockets in them. And mm-hmm. so once they're ripe, they flood the field. I thought they grew them in a bog. No, it's a normal field. And then they flood it. And then they drive these like tractors with aggravators spinning things through it that smack all the plants around. And then the berries float to the surface and then they push them all to a truck. I didn't know that. Mm. And it was amazing. Mm. And my point, I'm going to come back to in math class. And then I want to turn the mic over to you. But why I think this can save America is like us elitists coastal podcasters here we have we're desk jockeys we're on computers we can work remotely we're, we're looking at computers all day and people like us really have an interaction with people who are making the world move with their hands who are like physically building things who are farming the food we eat and even in the programming we watch it's all fictional storytelling you know there was like modern marvels was a show like a decade ago that was cool but like even in the stuff we watch, we're not seeing America get made physically. Oh, I was thinking of that Dirty Jobs. Dirty Jobs was awesome. That With guy was the Mike, man. Uh, what's that guy's name? Mike. Oh, um, we should know that. Hold on. That guy We're was terrible with names and Dirty things today. Dirty Jobs. It was Vecna. Mike Vecna. Mike Vecna. Uh, <laughs> of course. It was Mike Vecna. <laughs> Maybe he's Vanek. Maybe it's Mike Vanek. You're very close. Mike Rowe. Mike, Mike Rowe, Rowe was great. Yes. We just like don't have that pro. Now all the programming is like the British Bake Off, where it's like super high end pastry. Revan has like a budget of a billion dollars to make food. Super rich people that have no visible job. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And this is yeah. like programming taught through like how Lavar and the production crew teaches it, like very slow paced and understanding, and like I don't know. I was feeling like. A feeling I haven't felt in a while of like this like pride for what people are doing in our country, making the stuff that keep us going around the clock every day. That's why I'm saying I think reading Rainbow could help save America. I was so impressed with it. I love that part. That's awesome. What about you? What did you get into? Do you want to talk high level? Do you want to get in down to like the nitty gritty per episode? What do you got? A few things like, you know, the segments you were talking about that were really cool. I saw one, it was Alistair in Outer Space. And the live action segment, they go to the Library of Congress and show behind the scenes, kind of like what you were talking about. But it's how you get a book that you request because the Library of Congress is massive. It's it's this huge, huge collection. Right. And like he fills out this slip and this librarian puts it in a pneumatic tube like at the bank drive through and it gets sucked out to this place someone grabs it they go pull the book off the shelf they put it on this whole conveyor belt system and it probably was, it was amazing like, it was so cool very it cool. felt like watching yeah like when you pull apart a, like you know what does an escalator look like if i rip open the yeah. underside of it we only see like what 10 percent of it but like what's all the cool stuff underneath that makes it go back to where it is and change its shape and move in and out of itself. Like it was that kind of interesting hidden stuff that run the world that you just don't see every day. And that was super cool. And you don't think about it until someone, like you said, talks about it and you're like, Oh yeah, duh. Of course there's this whole machine just to get me a book. I want, which is super mind blowing. It's so cool. So that was great. Now let me tell you about the very first episode I popped on. Oh boy. Because it was a little hard to find this show. 
I saw that it was streaming on Amazon Prime. It was not. So that's where I found it. And they only there's only like six episodes. And then you got to pay for everything Oh, else. I didn't find any. I couldn't find any. And then I saw it was on Roku. It was not. So oh, no. it's not findable right now because I think it's on – I think there's like a PBS app or something like that. Okay. Not on a lot of your main streamers, let's say. But YouTube had some episodes. And so I pulled up the first one that came up. It's an episode called The Ten Forest. It's okay. from 2002. Okay. And it is about September 11th. Holy cow. So I was like, we're getting right into it. The episode, he goes to this school, PS234 in New York City. It's an elementary school, blocks away from ground zero. It's a year after, and he's talking to these Holy kids moly. about this upheaval in their lives, this attack. They had to go to this other school for a while, and they talked about their experiences like on that day. And then all of this support they got from, like, the community and from the world. And they end up making a music video to share with people to thank them for, oh my like, God. all the support. It was, like, very touching. Tears, tears, tears. You know, it kind of tied in nicely, of course, to the book called The Ten Forest. And the, the kids, like, went around the community and were taking photos with people that helped them out. Yeah. Um, like there's a restaurant that was providing first responders like free lunch while they were working, um, like all these different places. And they stop by Ladder 8. No way. Which is the Ghostbusters Oh, my God. It's all coming together. Which we just talked about. What was it? Last episode? Two episodes ago? Uh, November is when I visited it. So shortly thereafter, yeah, but I guess. We've mentioned it in a couple episodes. As it I felt like it came up recently. On every episode of season three. Right. So it was just, it was a very like touching. And the fact that it was like just a year after that happened and to go and have this really earnest conversation with these kids and just to hear them in their own words talk about the experience. It was just, it was very powerful. And I think was a prime example of the power of this show. It was very uplifting to see that come out of such, you know, death and devastation and tragedy. Yeah, just an amazing episode. My goodness. I will throw out there, the rest are not that heavy. Like, it's never like a contemporary, holy no. crap <laughs> moment. It's yeah. like, it's cranberries and planting trees was like, yeah, the yeah, theme yeah, of yeah, most of, of the ones I saw. So you came out of the gate with the heaviest episode ever produced. That was my first Rainbow. episode. Did it yeah. get any easier? <laughs> Yeah, I watched a couple more episodes, and like I mentioned, there's the one with the Library of Congress, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, the rest, they're all, for the most part, very straightforward. The other one, they were talking about shipping containers and ports and the vessels oh, yeah. and, like, yeah. how the shipping industry works, and that was really cool. So, yeah, just, you know, it, it's fun stuff like that, typically, but also, when necessary, let's tackle something that is a flashpoint in history for anyone who was alive at that time. Yeah. It's something that's powerful. And so let's talk about it. Big hats off to everyone who made that show for, I don't know if it's a risk. I'd say to, yeah, taking a risk. Let's just say, I think it's a little risky. Yeah. I mean, all these shows have taken a risk at some point. I mean, there was the whole thing with back in the day, Mr. Rogers, shares a, a swimming pool in his backyard, like That's a little right. kiddie pool with the mailman who's black. Because like yeah. that was at a whole time where civil rights and a lot of strife between those two groups and showing like, hey, we are the same humans together. There's actually an episode where um, LeVar goes on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood 
and they like talk a little oh. bit about the importance of learning and reading. That was really sweet. I enjoyed watching that. That's amazing. But they'll take, I mean, God, one of them referenced an episode where like on Sesame Street where Big Bird talks about death. Like somebody dies and Big Bird talks oh, to a bunch of kids about death. That's right. Like all, I think I remember that. All these yeah. shows like flex their muscles at some point. They're like, yo, we got to be bigger than what we are. There's more going on than just what we've got going on. Yeah. I see it too with reading Rainbow. It makes sense because, you know, like you said in history, reading Rainbow's purpose was not to teach kids to read. It was the next step after that. It was to like teach a learning of literature and storytelling. And we are the major events that happen in our lives. Our stories are those of the big events in our lives. And that's a major thing that influenced kids. I'm not surprised they, you know, went on a limb and made that episode in 2002, you said? Yeah, year after. It's impressive. This team who put this show together were amazing people. Absolutely. I do, you know, because we've mentioned a few others. I just do want to talk in chemistry class about these shows that have, I would say, edutainment goals. I don't like that term. Yeah. And it wasn't really a term at that time in the 80s. But there are a lot of these shows that are like people freaking love. They remember them from their childhood They're amazing. We've named a few of them. So there's Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. There's Sesame Street. Blue's Clues. For sure. What else is there? Dora the Explorer. Dora the Explorer is a great example. I would throw in Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. A thousand percent. Also, Rockapella, another dope theme song, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Absolutely. That's so good. Look, you're talking to someone who's literally spent his entire career in edutainment. I hate the phrase too, but it is like how I put food on the table. Because, you know, sometimes a little spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Sometimes the educational topic's not so great. You got to spice it up a little bit. Absolutely. Which is a whole nother thing. I'm going to come back to the shows you're talking about. I will bring it back. But, like, when I look back at the times that I've worked with children, whether it was when I've worked in um, on the floor at museums or working at summer camp, like, LeVar Burton is an influence on how I talk to children. Like, 100%. The tone and the pace that I use when I'm not trying to be super psyched about something, but just, like, normal teaching. Yeah. I can feel parts of his voice in me and how I used Hmm. to be like that in those jobs. Just such an influence for sure. Talked about those. I mean, Fraggle Rock we've talked about is definitely a a form of edutainment, more about personal connections. The Muppets back in the day before the shenanigans of the Muppet show, just normal Muppets, very educational um, through an edutainment sort of angle. You think so? I don't know. I find those to be more like straightforward shows. I'm thinking of like... Well, you mentioned Wishbone last episode, which, by the way, when you you mentioned Wishbone, I had no clue what you were talking about. I had never heard of that show, but that's why I dropped the commercial in there last episode because you had mentioned it. Thank you for putting it in there. I really appreciate it. Right? Like, that was a perfect one. More around, like, teaching classic literature, I think. Uh, Magic School Bus. Oh, I was just about to say you pulled it right out of my mouth. Magic School Bus (laughs) is perfect for science education. I love that. Bill Nye, the science guy. You're talking about all my heroes. I have a t-shirt... That says, because I was a Batman nerd, I love Batman, it's one of my favorite IPs, but the shirt says, some men just want to watch the world learn. Yeah. And it has, like, Bill Nye the Science Guy, it has LeVar Burton on it, it has Bob Ross, it has Mr. Rogers. Beautiful. It has Neil deGrasse Tyson, because he was really hot at the moment when that shirt was made. That's amazing. But, uh, you're talking about my heroes here. I When I worked at a museum... Well, quick pause, because I just need to say, for Bill Nye, you talked about how Reading Rainbow wasn't the first show to, like, feature books and talk about books on the air. I said to say, before Bill Nye was Mr. Wizard's World. Mr. Wizard! Don't forget about Mr. Wizard! He was really a predecessor to talking about science and how science worked before Bill Nye. So 
I have to imagine Mr. Wizard was a great, much like Fred Rogers was an inspiration to LeVar and the Reading Rainbow Company, I would have to imagine Mr. Wizard was that same kind of inspiration to Bill Nye. So I just want to throw that out there. You've got like Shining Time Station. I think Romper Room was big for a lot of people. I never watched Romper Room, but I know that's a big show. Um, I thought about doing this one on on 80s High, Eureka's Castle, I loved oh, as a yeah, kid. Oh, yeah, Eureka's Castle. Sharon Lois and Bram, The Elephant Show, Skinamarink-a-dink-a-dink. That oh, was yeah. kind of edutainment. Yeah. Barney. Barney was a very edu- edutainment yeah. show. Yeah. I mean, most of the ones I've talked about came after Reading Rainbow. Yeah. I mean, there's so many more. We're not going to be able to name them all, especially more modern ones like Baby Einstein and some others. There's like, there's just tons of them. Oh, Baby Einstein. God, I forgot about that. I think there's this interesting little niche where Reading Rainbow sits that I don't think other things overlap too much with it. Yeah, which is? The focus on books, kids liking books. We're going to recommend books. We're going to deconstruct a book's theme and then we're going to explore it in the real world. Like, I don't think any other show comes close to that. No, I 100% agree. Like, it was such a cool little and kind of a simple premise. It's like, here's this book, and then let's expand the world of this book a little more. Uh, So I'm kind of surprised. You know the one that I did find on YouTube that was easy to watch? You Mm. of all people, knowing what IP you love, did you watch the crossover episode with LeVar Burton in Star Trek? I did not. I did not see that one. So it's awesome. I think it's kind of a special because he doesn't read a book. It's just him on the set of Star Trek. And he teaches how a TV show is produced. Oh, that's cool. It was super rad. So he's going to like makeup and costuming and he like talks to the director and cuts like to him like in costume doing his lines. Like he's on set and someone else kind of, it's still his voice like saying like, and then I do this and sometimes I make a mistake and we have to shoot it again. And then it's like Patrick Stewart on set being charming and talking to LeVar like as LeVar for reading Rainbow. It's actually like really freaking cool. It's a really good episode. I just imagine makeup where everyone's in and out of the chair in like 10 minutes and Michael Dorn getting this Klingon. There's one Klingon. Like, he's been there for 12 hours. He's being glued to his forehead and all this other crap. He's there for like eight hours and everyone else is like a little touch up makeup. All right, I'm ready to go. Like Patrick Stewart, you know, <laughs> doop, 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 done. Jordy comes in, snap on the visor. All right, I'm good. A hundred percent. But uh, it's good. I recommend that watch. One other thing I want to touch on, if we've got time here in chemistry, was this idea of the kids giving the book recommendations. Yeah. And I think that is one of the most important things that happens in this show. Now, the idea where it came from is a little – the producers don't seem to agree. One of the the writers of the show, uh, her name is Dr. Schechter. A lot of people say Ellen, Ellen Schechter. She came up with it. What one of the producers says is he gives credit to a librarian in New Jersey because they would go to libraries to talk about how's the show doing? What do you think of this thing? What are kids reading? That kind of stuff. Right. And he said that she had a little file on her desk of book reviews that kids had written about the books in the library that she hmm. just liked to keep and like give to other kids. Right. And to this producer, Ganek, when he was talking with her, she handed him the file when he was asking what books do kids like. And she said, here, you don't have to take my word for it. Which is where the line in Reading Rainbow apparently comes from. Now, I don't know which of these is true and which is not. That sounds fake. Like It, it kind of sounds fake. It right? could be true, but it sounds fake. I don't know. It sounds fake. I mean, I, I'm not going to question him. I wasn't involved in the show. But it's one of those origin stories where somebody accidentally drops a hot dog <laughs> into some batter. And they're like, wait a second. This is a corn dog. A corn dog. It's 
I don't know. But it okay, feels you know. a little too serendipitous, but I like the romance of it. Fair. But why this is so good? I'm going to make a broad statement that's probably inaccurate, uh, which is basically my middle name. You love doing it on this show, so let's just keep it going. I do love doing it on this show. Now, to be fair, I haven't really watched Captain Kangaroo, so I could be corrected there. But I think this is the, if not just one of, the first children's television shows for kids that listened to kids, that gave kids sincere airtime. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, think of like the bit like kids say the darndest things. Like we as adults are laughing at kids. We're not laughing with them. We're laughing at their naive perception of the world hmm. or their inability for proper speech yet. But like the camera, boom, on the kid in Reading Rainbow, no distractions. The kid talks. You can you can see in their eyes. They're not reading back and forth lines on a script. They're telling you, I like this book. Here's what I like about it. You as my fellow short person should also go get this book. It is great. And like, there's such a respect for kids as equal humans in that Mm. action that I think is so groundbreaking. And I don't have a precedent for it before reading Rainbow. Yeah, like in other shows, the host is saying something that the kids then react to or answer a question or whatever. And in this one, like the kid has full agency. This is my favorite book and why I like it. It's also charming AF. These kids are like freaking adorable. They're so charming. You know, they speak in their own voice. Some of them are very confident. Others are kind of nerdy. Some are just like, you know, you can just tell they're very bubbly and like it's – it's great. It's lovely. It's a wonderful part of the show. I think it's my favorite segment. And it's usually like, I could probably watch half an episode of just kids Absolutely. talking about their favorite it's books. so cute. Yeah. This gives kids time to speak and be heard, which is, uh, I can't overemphasize the importance of early childhood development for that to happen. It's awesome. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people who, as kids, had done that really talked about how that was an important moment for them. Like, it felt like they got to do something that was really empowering and cool and not everyone got a chance to do. And they were able to share their story about this book that was meaningful to them, which is, yeah, it was amazing. Now, while you were watching those segments, were you getting jealous that everyone was listening to what the kids wanted people to read and you didn't get to share your own favorite books? I have favorite books too, you guys. Gosh. Gosh, I read a book. Let's talk just a little bit about favorite books as a kid. What were those things that really drew us into reading? Uh, As well as listener Megan, who Megan talks about some books here, The Magic Well, Koala Lu, The Witches, Taily Poe, which if you want a nightmare, look up Taily Poe. Taily Poe. Grimm's Fairy Tales and Chronicles of Narnia. So yeah, great list. Some definite uh, things that you will recognize and a few others that I learned something new, which is always the joy of hearing about other people's favorites. So thank you, Megan, for that. Yeah, Taily Poe is going to haunt your dreams. Just the first picture that comes up. What is this? Yeah. Scary folklore? Yeah. Oh, my God. So I think Megan is a lady after my own heart because, like, she's got some, like, darker stuff on here. I'm going to assume The Witches is a little bit darker subject matter. Taylor the Witches definitely. is great. Have you, it's a Roald Dahl one. Have you ever read The Witches oh, or seen Roald the movie? Dahl, yeah. No, I haven't. No. Dude, I, The Witches is actually great. I highly recommend that. Yeah, that's definitely bit my wheelhouse, as you're going to see. Uh, do you, Ben, have any favorite books as a kid that really drew you into reading? You read a lot, reread, couldn't get enough of? 
series, standalones, what you got? I'll give you a few here, and I'll I'll end on probably the funniest part. So, I mean, I loved Roald Dahl as a kid. Mm -hmm. Shel Silverstein, probably like the most influential poet on me when I was a kid. Like, I loved certainly. Shel Silverstein poetry. Yeah. Where the Sidewalk Ends. Oh, my God. So good. Um, When I got a little older, a little bit older, I really loved The Stinky Cheese Man. Do you know this book? Never heard of it. The Stinky Cheese Man is like classic Grimm's fairy tales gone totally wonky and hilarious. Like, Hmm. they just get totally messed up. It's a really fun one. But I honestly, (laughs) a couple summers ago, my parents were like, hey, we're cleaning out the house. You got to come get your stuff or we're just going to give it all away. And I was like, well, I kind of want to keep some of that stuff. So I did this big trip out. And they had a box of all my books from my little library that I had in my room. When I got home and I cracked open the books, they're all like science textbooks. I, for some reason, (laughs) kept getting gifted. Because like the front page is all like, Merry Christmas from Nan and Pap, like that kind of thing. When I was very little, I was being given like high school and above level marine biology and paleontology books and like geology books. Wow. Um, and nature. And it's all like, you know, it's all the scientific names. I mean, there's some stuff that's a little lower reading level, like 11 or 12 year old, but like I apparently just love flipping through and looking at the pages of like animals and science stuff. That was like a lot of what I read as a little kid. Wow. Yeah, look nerd. at you, a little textbook. Nerd. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Amazing. I didn't, and they were all gifted. I did not steal a single one. And not every podcaster on this episode can say that. I, wow. I did not steal a book. Wow. That's you where we're going. You called Steal This Book. Is that the That's one you stole? That's where I don't think we're so. going. I just see. Keep it in check here. I uh, see. What's on your childhood summer reading list? What What would you recommend if we don't have to take my word for it? Well, speaking of Roald Dahl, I love James and the Giant Peach. That was oh, like classic. So a good. freaking classic. Probably one of my favorites was Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and Super Fudge. Those were Super Judy Fudge. Bloom right, right, books. Right, right, I loved right. the Fudge books and his brother Peter. Uh, Shel Silverstein, you know, as you mentioned, so was great. And uh, In a Dark, Dark Room and other scary stories. Oh, I sure, think we talked right. about in our Halloween episode. We did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I loved those scary stories. Those were amazing. And then as I got older, I started getting into like Michael Crichton, John Grisham, sure, Sue yeah. Grafton. Do you remember Sue Grafton? She had the letter is for, is like A is for alibi, oh. H is for homicide. I think I read a couple of Sue Grafton's books. Like, I don't is know what you. Is that where your like interest in disappearing people is that a Sue Grafton thing? I, you know what I think it was with some of these. Like John Grisham was the movie, Michael Crichton yeah. movie, Sue Grafton not a movie, but anyway, yeah. And then unsolved mysteries. That's how unsolved that's, mysteries, that's what, of course, that's what got you into it. Well, books may be brain food, but they are no substitute for actual food. Real food. So let's head down to the cafeteria where I hope they're serving something rainbow colored, like sherbet or cereal. (laughs) Then we'll regroup in contemporary culture to see what happened to reading rainbow in the 90s up to the present. What do you say, Ben? I can go anywhere, but I choose to go to the cafeteria because I am starving. (laughs) Uh, We'll have some of those. uh... Oh, that's what I was going to say. The cereal is called Eating Rainbows. Eating Rainbows. Is this a dad joke or is that real? Of course it's a dad joke. Get out of here. Pizza for lunch. That's good. I got 40 letters, a pile of memos, and a bunch of... Pizza for lunch. New personal pan pizza at Pizza Hut. Just for one, just for lunch, and just five minutes or your next one's free. Are you kidding? Pizza for lunch? I gotta do two break jobs, three tune-ups, order a... 
just five minutes. Or your next one's free. New personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. Just five minutes. Guaranteed. All right. I'm in contemporary culture. The show is now run by a single host. Uh... <laughs> And an AI called Ziggy. Um, uh, a pun too far, and Ben oh, is now off the show. That dude, you just named my autobiography. A pun, a pun, too, pun far. too far. I like that a lot. <laughs> oh, man. So the cafeteria reminded me, like, all the episodes I watched, they cooked so much on it. Like, he made mashed potatoes with his daughter, like his real daughter in one of the episodes. Nice. They, they made, like, cranberry bread on the cranberry episode. Like, there's also a cooking teaching component, which is, like, a fun thing for little kids to get all messy and bake and help yeah. you in the kitchen, that kind of thing. But, like, it was really cool. I didn't get the details, but uh, sure. cooking was It wasn't there to the teach too. you, but it was more right. just, you know, the act of. And maybe, like, a kid could be like, hey, mom, I want to bake cookies with you next time. Exactly. You know, it was like very that. sweet. It was Kids very love to measure things out and help out. So, you know, pull things out of packages or whatever. They like 100%. to be little helpers. It's they good. They have a great time. They have a great time. Well, we are in contemporary culture to talk about. Let's first start, I guess, with Reading Rainbow, the show itself, because as Ben mentioned, like all good things, sadly, it comes to an end. Yeah. So that end happens in 2006. The broadcast and creation of new episodes ends that year due to funding challenges, which Ben wants to talk a little bit about, uh, but also a growing need to update the show's concept to adapt to changing technology and delivery methods. So this is another thing, too. You know, LeVar has really talked about how, like, television in the 80s was a powerful ally. It was an emerging platform. And at this point, you know, this is now, like, 23 years after the show's creation, and it was time for a little, you know, dust off and retool. Yeah, yeah. Time to see what, you know, what can come next, which we will certainly talk about. And the show does continue to air as reruns until 2009. So that's that 26 years. They flip the switch. The lights go out. Sadly, no more reading Rainbow. As a, a public broadcast show, it's come to an end because of funding challenges, but it's not so much like we don't have the money. Something else is at play here, right, Ben? Yeah, unfortunately. And what is that? What a lot of the show producers attribute to the final nail in the coffin for Reading Rainbow is the No Child Left Behind Act. Now, that might be rings a little bit of a bell. Yeah. That was signed into law in 2002 by President George W. Bush. And I don't know if you've found this, but like I said, I'm in edutainment, so I cross paths with a lot of people who are in education. And I have not met anyone in education who has anything good to say about this act. This This no. caused rampant problems in education and was more of a, I don't know, trying to, I think trying to be more of a political win than actual helping the American education symbol. It it put up so many barriers and systems and measurement tools that a lot of teachers now had to teach to some sort of like standard thing. We were all going to take the test on and you, it just brought everything to a very slow pace in the class because the whole thing was leave no child behind. So you had to go at the pace of wherever your most struggling student was. Yeah. How that affects the corporate for public broadcasting is any any kind of educational programming that they had fell under the rules of this No Child Left Behind Act, which meant the programming had to be measurable and teaching towards specific benchmarks and KPIs, key performance indicators for those who don't have to suffer with that annoying acronym in your line of work. 
And reading Rainbow, like I said, was meant not to teach kids to read, but to teach them a love of reading, which is something that's pretty impossible to measure. So because reading Rainbow had no stats to prove that it was teaching kids to love reading, it lost its federal funding and just couldn't stick afloat. Yeah, and that's one of the unfortunate things when creating these high-level policies is that often what is a victim is something like this where I feel like undeniably we know it has an impact. Yeah. It's qualitative perhaps, but how many people remember this show? How many people can talk about a favorite book that they learned about from the show or had a good experience being on there? Or just, you know, you, even as an adult, were like, I got to tell my family how cranberries are harvested. Like, <laughs> you know, not everything needs to be measurable. But unfortunately, when you're talking about federal dollars and where do we allocate them, this is how it happens sometimes. When policy is what matters more than the actual experience, it's based on outcomes. And I mean, there's Common Core now. I think there's still issues with it, frankly. Oh, for sure. Especially when you can't localize content to your community, to your school, to your local public education system or whatever. Like there's just – there's so much that gets lost when everything is at a a high level. Great example – Barnes & Noble is actually, I was reading, making a comeback. Speaking really? of books. And part of it is that the stores are no longer at some like corporate level of what they can do. They are allowing more local authority and oh, good. agency over what books they put on the shelves. So basically, Barnes & Noble is saying, like, rather than we're going to let the publishers dictate what we put on there because it's pay to play. So now we got to put all these books on these shelves. They can localize the content and they're almost like librarians in a sense where they have a little more agency over what's in the store. And as a result, people who work there are excited and they talk about it and they're engaging. And that's cool. It's creating more of this conversation. Exact same thing at this education level. And so unfortunately, this show becomes a victim of of policy, but it's not the first and it won't be the last story of that. It's a little heartbreaking. A year after this this new law goes into effect, uh, LeVar is going up on stage to accept one of the show's 26 Emmys that it won. Yeah. And in his speech, he says, quote, this might be the last time we're up here. There's no funding because they just lost their federal funding. Now, in that story, him saying that actually gets Reading Rainbow some donations and it helps keep them afloat for a few years longer. But it's just like so sad the immediate impact that had. And what an impact. The series garnered more than 250 awards. That's bananas. Including a prestigious Peabody, nine Parents' Choice Awards, 26 Emmys, as you mentioned, including nine for Outstanding Children's Series. 250 awards is almost as many albums as Herbie Hancock has produced in this year alone. It's almost there. Neck and neck, man. It's a lot. They just keep one up in each other every year. Yeah. Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, In 2004, the PBS study of video and television use among K through 12 teachers, Reading Rainbow was the number one most watched PBS program in classrooms nationwide. That's awesome. And educators continued to use the series in their classrooms. It obviously had this massive impact, not just on kids, but also on teachers and being able to show content in classrooms. You know, part of my job and previous jobs has been working with educators and teachers, and they love having people come in and supplement what they're talking about. 
It's kind of like when your parents tell you something, you're like, whatever. And then like your cool uncle or a friend tell you something, you're like, mom, dad, guess what? X, Y, Z. And they're like, I literally I just, just told you that. Told you that. It's the same kind of thing. Teachers love having other people come in and do that presentation. And sometimes you don't get them in person, but this this show was a way to do that. Yeah. And Kids love it. It's a break in the routine. Whenever they rolled out that TV cart, I was in heaven, man. I was like, oh, what are we going to watch now? Whoa, screen day. Yeah, very exciting. So this is not the total end of Reading Rainbow, but listeners, dear, dear listeners, this is a sordid tale that is not super interesting, but it zigs, <laughs> it weaves. Oh, there's a lot of zigging and zagging. It pops and locks, it ducks, dodges, dips, dives, and dodges. It's all over the place. We're going to do some broad strokes. We yeah, might miss luck. some of the minutiae here, but it's not super interesting in, in all the gory detail. So 2006, no more new episodes. 2009, off the air. In 2011, the show is licensed, the Reading Rainbow brand, I should say, is licensed to Burton's company, RR Kids. Reading Rainbow Kids. Yeah. This allows Burton to use the branding of Reading Rainbow and then the company that owns it, WNED, they get a revenue cut. Under the agreement, RR Kids launches the Reading Rainbow app. Again, let's find a platform. Apps are really hitting the market hard in 2011. This is a cool way to engage kids. That was all great. But WNED does become a little unhappy with Burton when he launches a Kickstarter campaign called Bring Reading Rainbow Back in 2014. This ends up raising over $5 million. It's crazy. And it's I crazy. think they get like an additional million in like other donations, like yeah. in relation to the Kickstarter. It goes gangbusters. Clearly people have a love if they're willing to drop this kind of money. At that time, it's one of the most successful Kickstarters and it's huge. But WNED says that Burton had some contract and trademark violations and they say basically... Reading Rainbow Kids is illicitly and methodically attempting to take over the Reading Rainbow brand by creating and posting new episodes and negotiating with Netflix to produce and distribute new episodes and raising money without their authorization. So they sue. Yeah. Burton's company disputes the claims. They countersue. WNED counter countersues. My goodness. Finally, it's settled out of court in 2016. What is this? Smurfs and snorks? What's going on here with all these Seriously, lawsuits right? in possession? What is happening here? So they do settle out of court in 2016, and basically, Reading Rainbow Kids has to change their name to LeVar Burton Kids, which yeah. I don't even think exists anymore. This is where it gets all kind of wonky. This is as much as I can tell. There is something out there called Skybrary. Skybrary? It's a curated interactive library of ebooks. I think LeVar Burton Kids became Skybrary, but I think it's also been sold. Again, this is really down a rabbit hole that's not super interesting. But Skybrary still exists, and it's an interactive library of ebooks and real world video explorations designed to engage young readers and foster a love of reading. So, again, all of these offshoots that we're going to be talking about, they're all with this goal in mind finding different platforms, different services, different types of engagement to reach kids, again, with that core mission that is from Reading Rainbow at the outset. Yeah. Reading Rainbow is coming back, not with LeVar Burton. Yeah, right. Reading Rainbow Live, apparently 2022, so last year. Yeah. Buffalo, Toronto, public media that we talked about way back in history class is partnering with Ohana Pictures 
and they're creating educational, interactive, original content, read it for a Reading Rainbows series. And instead of a person, they have a group of people called the Rainbows. Eh, okay. The Rainbows. Isn't that, wait, isn't that um Hawaii's football team? Aren't they the Rainbows? I have no idea. There's going to be another lawsuit here. I Interesting. think the fighting rainbows. This is like a whole, ah, th- oh, here we go again. Oh boy. Oh boy. Here we go. <laughs> so what else is going on? LeVar has started like a LeVar Burton book club. Yeah. On the app Fable, which is a social reading app, uh, which features selections that are handpicked by LeVar. Well, and on topic, not just an app, he has a podcast, uh, LeVar Burton Reads. Yep. Which, like, he, he reads books to the audience, sharing new stories and authors, uh, even adults, people that grew up on Reading Rainbow. So there's some connection there. And it's been downloaded more than 25 million times. So it's catching up to 80s high. It's already caught up to 80s high because we talked about this sometime in season two because friend of the show and guest host Allison M. Dixon had a short story featured on LeVar Burton oh, Reads. Oh, right. I forgot about that little shout out. Yeah. Actually, about a year ago, February 7th, 2022. On the episode, John Dillinger and the Blind Magician, which is the short story title by Miss Allison Dixon. So it's a great little uh, tale. Check it out. And what an honor to have LeVar Burton himself read one of your stories. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. So clearly what we see here is LeVar just has this undying passion for getting people excited about reading. LeVar Burton reads, he's not reading kids books. Like he's reading Vonnegut's short stories by famous people. And then these gems by new writers, unknown authors, you know, they just find these good stories and something speaks to LeVar about it. And he's like, okay, we're going to read this on my podcast. Super cool. That's awesome. Also in 2022, did you see Ben, the butterfly in the sky documentary? I have not Googled so hard in my life where to watch blank. Was it not impossible to find? I think it's only in physical film festivals. Like it it premiered at Tribeca and then you can't find it anywhere else. I don't know how to find it. Okay. I'm glad I wasn't the only person who I was like, do I not understand how internets work? Am I a Google search failure? It was infuriating. I want to see this because it tells the story of reading Rainbow, its iconic host, LeVar Burton, and the challenges its creators face in cultivating a love of reading through television. So it's kind of like, you know what this reminded me of? Hmm. Won't You Be My Neighbor? Do you remember that documentary about Fred Rogers? It was solid. This would be so cool to watch. I want to check this out because I think they also talk to adults who were those kids recommending books and what that meant to them. And so hopefully it'll be available at some time maybe in a future episode we can give a little update if we uh if we find butterfly in the sky the documentary <laughs> in the wild hopefully soon okay so speaking of last year 2022 so wait the, more stuff is 2022 like the dude, year of reading rainbow reading rainbow is happening wow. it's not okay. losing steam it is bad what else did you find so the theme song by sung by the Tina Fabrique version Went, started going viral last spring on TikTok. Oh, really? <laughs> now, I do, not, I do not have the talk ticks. I don't know how to use TikTok. I've never looked at it. 
But I guess like there's this sort of like what I would interpret as a meme that goes around on TikTok where it's a video where people are trying to figure out something really difficult or challenging. Okay. And there's like a filter where you can have like their face flying around like the sun and math equations and planets and galaxies. It's the space filter for those of you who use TikTok. All right. And so people keep putting the Reading Rainbow theme song to it. Miss Fabrique is still alive and well. And she sort of reacted like I did. We're like, I don't know what the TikToks are, but I'm glad people are loving the song. That's great. But it, it had, at the time last spring, it had been in more than 333,000 videos wow. that are of this meme. And the hashtag Reading Rainbow has 86 million views on the platform. So Whoa. still real hot on TikTok, Reading Rainbow. No doubt. Okay. Yeah. Look at that. And bringing us right up, like, real close to the recording, there was actually something that happened just on December 11th, is that LeVar Burton was honored by the National Academy of Arts and Sciences with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the first annual Children and Family Emmy Awards Ceremony in L.A. on December 11th. Amazing. And his uh, buddy and fellow Emmy Award winner, Lawrence Fishburne, was the one who got to, like, give his little announcement and then welcome him up and give him his Emmy. So I thought that was pretty cool. He's still winning, winning awards for the work that he does. An honor well-deserved and earned. That's fantastic. And what a great way to close out 2022 with a right? huge recognition for a lifetime of, of service. Your, your mic drop on, a, on another tough year. Yeah. Anything else you've got in contemporary culture for us? Well, you know, we talked about books we loved as a kid. And part of the show is recommending books to other yeah. kids. So that would be yeah. fun if we talk about what are some books that we would recommend to listeners, you know, as adults. Is there a book out there that you're like, people might like this. I want to talk about some of our favorites. Yeah. As well as listener Megan. She says, The Explosive Child, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, Lock and Key. That's lock with an E. I don't know if that's Ooh. like the John Locke, a... Uh, it's like a philosopher, right? Oh, I think yeah, it's like of course. A philosopher. John Locke. Yeah, also a character um, on Lost. Maybe it's about Lost. Maybe it's a fanfic <laughs> about Lost. We don't know. That's got to be what it is. Uh, the Sandman. Oh, that yeah. That was big huge. last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So oh. we wish we could have Megan here to really hype these up like the kids do on the show, but check them out. Ben, do you have any favorite books as an adult or you know, a teenager even that you're like, this is... A banger of a book. You got to check it out. Look, our show is 80s high, so I'm just going to stay on topic. Personally, I don't think there's a better 80s pop culture book than Ready Player One. Not written Mm. in the 80s, but like so much pop culture throwback to like music, video games, toys from the 80s that like if you need like a heavy, dense dose of nostalgia, Ready Player One is a a great book to dive into. If you like little sci-fi and you want a good, good nostalgia bump. Nice. That's what I have. What about you? So there's three books that I just absolutely adore and I think most people could get into. So there's Life of Pi, which I don't know if you've ever read that book. Absolutely. Such such an amazing story. And it's like one of those books where you read it and you're like, okay, now that I know everything that happened, I kind of have to go reread it to figure out what I just read. Absolutely. Uh, The Martian is an amazing story. I almost said that one. I just got his sequel for Christmas. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not a sequel to The Martian, but another sci-fi kind of book like that. I think I had that same book and I haven't read it yet, but it's in my like, it's in my e-reader ready to go. Um, But The Martian is a great story. Like if you want somebody who uses science to get out of a a life-threatening jam, like such a great, great book. And my all-time absolute favorite book ever. I cannot recommend enough. 
The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. It's by oh, Michael Chabon. Oh, nice. It is just a fantastic story. It's basically like pre-World War II, or the beginning, I should say, of World War II. These two cousins that end up starting comic books together. It just kind of dovetails great into this whole theme about using art through hardship. There's so much just like great character and story and theme. Oh, I can't talk that book up enough. Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. It's a solid recommendation. Super if I wish cool. You're making me wish we were like a, a visual podcast and you had a blue screen with the cover of the book behind you and we were like panning around it. Yeah. Also, it would have helped if you were like six delivering this book. But, you know, we'll take it. We'll take hey, everybody. It. My favorite story. My favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, it's a really good six-year-old voice. Tales of impressive. a fourth grade nothing. Fudge <laughs> is a little brother that you love to hate. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. This is amazing. But we're also living in a time where sometimes people decide that certain books – are the worst and should never be read and should be, in fact, banned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, We've seen mm-hmm. this time and again. Well, I'm sure Mr. LeVar Burton just kind of like kicks at the dirt a little bit with his foot and is like, well, that's unfortunate, but I'll keep silent. Right, Ben? That is a bold-faced lie. It reminds me, God, I wish I had brought up the video. There's a time when Fred Rogers goes to Congress because there was going to oh, be a cutting right. for PBS money. Yes. And he like does this amazing speech where it's basically like, this is so important. We can't yeah. cut funding for this. And he wins and he gets the money. He's like, I'm going to do Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but for realsies. And I'm going to go do this like impassioned speech to Congress. Yeah. May 1st, 1969, Subcommittee on Communications. Yeah, testifies for the power of reading for kids. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like LeVar is having that moment right now. Now is the time where he needs to stand up. Yeah, and basically, like, on that um, episode of The View that he was on recently, he talks to them about that, and they're talking about, you know, call for banning books, and he's basically like, look, let me just be clear about this. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing that this is happening. You know, he talks about, like, why people have an aversion to knowing our own past. He doesn't get it. And basically, he's like, read the books they're banning. There's a reason why they're being banned. Those are the books you should be reading. You know, I I appreciated the fact that he's very vocal about it. He'll always go to Twitter and basically challenge any of these things that happen. And I mean, what better person to deliver us a message of don't ban books than the man who taught us all to love reading books? (laughs) Yeah. You know? And I mean, he's very clear that like, this is an American problem. This is not something you're seeing in other industrialized nations around the world right especially democracies of all thing and that we've got these super loud very vocal very tiny minority of people who think they should have a say on what sort of books should be allowed in libraries and classrooms yeah and he's just yeah like you said embarrassing that they're banning children's books specifically about race sexuality and american history and that in america anything that's unpleasant we just don't want to seem to deal with but that these problems that we're facing are not going away Yeah, especially if you ignore them. I loved what he had to say. It it was really moving. Yeah, and and very prescient because just you know recently in Florida, they uh, the governor did not sign you know basically approve uh, African American studies as an AP course in public schools. Right, trying to hold back education about you know rougher parts of our history that we need to shine a light on, not step away from. Yeah. Get him, LeVar. We're 100% behind you, man. Well, this has been 
as I mentioned, twisty, turnaround, contemporary culture. We've gone all yeah, over the map. Yeah. We're back and forth. And there's one place we have to land, uh, and that's math class. And, and Ben, I have to tell you, my favorite math lessons were word problems. <laughs> they are always a little more entertaining, aren't they? They helped me understand numbers. So let's head to our final class where we will quantify our own thoughts on whether or not Reading Rainbow adds up today. I love it. Just be sure to return your book on time. I'm ashamed to say I pulled up my public library account and I have $17 in late fees. Oh my God. No. If I walked in there, they would do the thing where they grab the card for me and they get a comically large pair of scissors and they cut it in half. <laughs> no. <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, but we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about reading Rainbow and what our final analysis is on the show, the host, anything that came out of it, Ben. So let's start with you. What's it looking like for reading Rainbow? Are you cutting its funding? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> After the fact, retroactively? No, I'm of the congressional bill, leave every child behind. Uh, No, (laughs) I'm going to start by giving the mic to actually the production team, and then I'll bring it back to myself. So uh, there was this quote by LeVar that said, we know how good those shows are, parentheses, these edutainment shows in the 80s, are now by the truth of the absence of shows like them today. Mm. That just like really sat with me when I read that. You're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you've got Sesame Street today, but it's different. But like, you don't have your Reading Rainbow, your Dora the Explorer, your Blues Clues, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. These are all gone. Quote: They may get some social emotional awareness from Mister Rogers. They'll get some rudiments in letters and numbers, and the same from Sesame Street. And they'll be encouraged to develop a personal relationship with the written word and storytelling through Reading Rainbow. That's a pretty good moment. That's what Lavar has to say about the legacy of Reading Rainbow. Well said, sir. I think the other thing that's important that I don't want to leave all the way behind in history is what two producers said about LeVar being the host. And that uh, Truett, one of the producers, said, I believe in my heart that the relationship LeVar created with young people is one of the factors in bringing them to embrace a relationship with an African-American man. It changed a generation's perspective. And the other producer, Wiseman, follows up and says, he made color both an issue and not an issue at the same time. LeVar transcended race, gender, and age. And like, I've got sort of three things here that I, will, I promise to keep high and tight. One is just the quality of the show, going back to Burton. Like, what an important show, how it was done. I talked at length about like the kids being heard and giving space to breathe and share their honest emotions and how it how it cultivated a love of learning and it makes me so sad and you 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 worded it so well that like our by the numbers politics left out something that couldn't be measured but that was obviously so valuable such a bummer the show itself was great placing lavar in that role massive what that did for representation on television for kids feeling comfortable with people like lavar burton and others um a lot like him that was just critical at time and space. May have seemed like got a big deal, but it was like massive changes at the time. Yeah. And the last part I'll bring it back is like, this is the show to heal the United States right now. You just talked about book banning and LeVar's fighting it. It's all about a love of reading and of every form. And this just showing like the value and the amazing brilliance and blue collar work on the episodes that I watched, like going out to farming and factories, like the stuff that keeps the country running 
it's just impressive. It's awesome. And like I straight up would happily watch episode upon episode of Reading Rainbow, frankly, for the live action sequences, because they I like legit learned stuff I didn't know or have forgotten 30 years later that I once knew and, and don't know anymore. Yeah. It's a great show. It holds up so well. I cannot find a single thing problematic in it that makes me wince. Ooh, that didn't age well. I never freaking said that. It's a wonderful show, and we could I think we all could use a lot more reading rainbow in our lives. Mm. That's what I got. What, what, what about you? What's your takeaway? Oh, man. Okay. Got to follow that. You're ready. You got this. It was like multiple mic drops along the way. A breadcrumb trail of <laughs> mic <bread> drops. Crumb. <laughs> I have destroyed an entire musical production. Of, That's right. It's terrible. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, as a person who values knowledge, curiosity, and learning in all of their forms, not just formal education, this show and its premise really uh, speaks to me. Books are a window into imagination and creativity. They foster empathy and learning about others and their inner thoughts, their struggles and triumphs, and helps us to understand our world, the people we encounter, and ourselves. And that is just, that to me is so powerful. You know, Reading Rainbow and its counterparts have a profound influence on our childhoods that last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Think of all of these shows people adore and how something like a Reading Rainbow Kickstarter brought in over $6 million. Yeah, that's huge. Or how people were clamoring to watch and then were mesmerized by that Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary about Fred Rogers. And we all may remember last year when Steve from Blue's Clues resurfaced during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. With a really touching and personal message for his fans. Like, you're, I never you're doing watched, great. You're yeah, doing I good. never watched that show and it like punched my heart. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. That was impressive. And I didn't even have that connection, but so many people do. And that's kind of the, the point. These shows are at our core and I think they reach something primal in our humanity. And that primal thing is the power of storytelling. Mm, yeah, yeah. storytelling stories that are encoded into our very survival but i think moreover stories are what allow us to thrive mm. and can't be quantified congress listen up lawmakers but they do elevate us in ways we can and cannot understand finally i continue to be in awe of lavar he's such an ins inspirational force positivity and hope and celebration of each other he's someone who isn't afraid to be authentic yeah. which is a vulnerability we don't all grant ourselves. Mm -hmm. His continued pursuit to find newer and different platforms to promote reading and literacy and love of books for all ages, that's a gift to the world. Especially, as we mentioned, in the face of embarrassing calls to ban books, remove blemishes of our history from school education. I mean, how can we grow when we don't learn from our past? When you know better you do better. <laughs> so much like you, Ben, I only have praise for this show, its mission, its host, LeVar Burton, and all the things that inspired that we may never really know. But, you know, perhaps one day we'll find it in a book. If only we take a look. <laughs> Very well written. That's perfect. That was awesome. Uh, great pick, sir. This was this might have been one of the most wholesome topics we've ever done. This was just awesome to go revisit Reading Rainbow. I think wholesome, hopefully not like sugar, saccharine, too sweet, where you're like, okay, I need a, I need something salty to even out my palate here. But yeah, I, I completely agree. It was so much fun to uh, to revisit this and and learn more about it. You know, a lot of stuff I didn't know before, and 
I would hazard a guess that on the next episode of 80s High, I will learn something I didn't know before. But the first oh, thing man. I'm going to learn is what that topic is going to be. Ben, enlighten us, if you will. We are both going to learn a lot on this one. We'll see. I'm sorry. We'll our show just goes. got pulled for funding. We're going to have to shut it off right here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we just, we this just, has been 80s High. We just fell victim to every podcast gets left behind. The new bill. That's right. So I look to the world for inspiration on what my topic choices will be. I have to, I have to be a human cultural sponge as I traverse mm. the world. So, you know, it's gray and rainy all, all winter in our neck of the woods. So largely a cave monster most of the winter, various indoor glowing screen or game, just waiting for the warm weather to come back. And so I emerged outside into my neighborhood and immediately heard a barking dog, which, which drives me nuts because I actually live in a very quiet neighborhood and it's like the one sound that happens that's unnatural. Like, ah, dogs. So I get in my car and I hear Pat Benatar haunting me. I swear to God, she's everywhere, man. She is hunting me everywhere I go. I also knew we were doing, we did two back-to-back topics of like great writing, you know, like great writing, great storytelling. And I was like, I need something with terrible writing and terrible storytelling. (laughs) Shallow. And I got in that car and I drove down to the beach, this beautiful sunset. And out of nowhere, this flock of ducks that had been sitting on the water take off and fly into the sunset. And after being inside, the dog barking, seeing the ducks, I knew we had to go back to April oh, 21st, 1984, <laughs> to the Famicom uh, and Nintendo Entertainment System to learn oh. about the origins of Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt! <laughs> Which, ironically, it wasn't uh. as fun. What is this as fun as an issue of setup? But we're recording today on January 29th, which happens to be the last day of duck season in Washington. I just oh. found that out tonight. This is one of the first video games I ever encountered. I'm so fascinated how the hardware works. I'm sure it's simple, right. but if you love Duck Hunt, you're like, oh, I know how Duck Hunt guns work, blah, blah, blah. Right. But like that, that hardware inspired so much of arcades oh, yeah. afterwards. I'm just so curious. I want to know. I don't know how it works. It's a mystery. Absolutely. No, that, that's a, a classic Nintendo game. I think pretty much every system came with that game, right? Wasn't it I, like I think. a game with Duck Hunt for I the most think. part? I'm very excited. This is a, a game unlike any other at that time because you had that different piece of hardware. And like you said, what did it lead to? I can't wait to find out. Oh, my God. So much. So grab your neon orange and gray blaster. Set your eyes high on the sky and join us as we try and find the perfect revenge for that absolute jerk dog on the next episode <laughs> of, of 80s, 80s High. high. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.